We are still walking through this account of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the Jews returned there from exile and after the city had been destroyed. They're there to rebuild it, among other things. It's been a long process. Over 90 years have gone by already when we get to chapter 5. Um, and what we read in chapter 4 was they were rebuilding the wall. That was the main thing they're working on right now. But opposition was rising against that. The people who moved in to Judah after the exiles left aren't real happy about them coming back, don't really want the city of God to be restored to its former glory. And so there's opposition as they start to make some progress to closing up the defensive wall around the city. That was chapter 4, and then in chapter 6, which Pastor Dan will preach on next week, that opposition is uh, again the focus of, uh, of the story, but here in chapter 5, which is in between those two accounts of opposition, we have an account of a different sort of problem that faced the Jews in the city where God had chosen to make His name known. So we're going to read verses 1 to 13 to start with, and then ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back or bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. 
I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Lord, open our eyes to these ancient times that aren't just history, but are instructive. You have a word for us this morning, and we thank you for it. We thank you that your whole Bible was written to give us an understanding of our world and of ourselves and of you and of the way of salvation and show us again this day how this path, the path that's in Nehemiah 5, leads us toward Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. I've given a title to this message, which is Walk in the Fear of the Lord. I borrow that concept from verse 9, where Nehemiah says to some of his fellow Jews, ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord? of our God. He said this because those who were in positions of leadership and privilege in the community were not walking in the fear of our God. They were being selfish. They were making life hard for their fellow Jews, and that provoked a great outcry over the injustice of it. So Nehemiah stepped in to right the wrong, and the people began to walk in the fear of the Lord again. So the question that will be before each of us as we follow through this story is, am I walking in the fear of the Lord? Because this account was written today for us to ponder that very thing. We're going to follow the story in three parts. The great outcry, the root problem, and then the living example that's presented at the end. Let's start with the great outcry. The chapter starts with this disclosure. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So the subject of the previous chapter, which was all about wall building and then about the enemies who are opposing it, that whole subject matter is tabled for right now. That recedes into the background. And now instead, there's this new problem, this strife that is between the Jews themselves. Some of them are being mistreated by their own brothers in the faith, their own countrymen. The situation was this. Hard times were forcing many of the Jewish families to go into debt in order to feed themselves. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. That's the way they put it in verse 2. They couldn't grow um, enough food for themselves to prevent starvation. They had to go get it somehow. This was for two reasons. One was because there was an ongoing famine which is mentioned in verse 3. Crops hadn't been growing well, maybe for a long time. Food was getting scarce. And the other reason is that a lot of these same Jews had been working on building the wall, which means they weren't out in their fields working the fields to get grain. They were restoring Jerusalem, 
but at a personal sacrifice. In providing for the community, they were, providing, they were not providing for themselves. And so they had to buy their food. They didn't have enough money to do it, and so they had to mortgage their fields, their vineyards, and their houses, according to verse 3. We might say that they took out a home equity loan in order to buy groceries. You wouldn't advise anybody to do that today. Because if you can't repay the loan, not only do you not get your groceries, but you lose your house. But what are they supposed to do? They don't have anything else. They just have those things. So they have to mortgage it to get money to buy food. To make matters worse, they had to pay what we would now call a property tax. Verse 4 says they had to pay the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. And how do you pay the king's tax? How do you pay your property tax if you're not making any money? If you're not getting any food yourself, your grain and all that, well, you have to go into debt. <clears throat> and so they went into debt, deep debt. Some of them said, we're even selling our children into indentured servitude. They're going to pay off our debt. They've become slaves to our creditors because now we don't even have the fields anymore. All we have is our children, and so they're working to pay off our debt. That's how bad it's gotten for some of these Jews. Through no fault of their own, they didn't create the famine, and they were diligently working on the wall so they couldn't actually get into their own fields. So this isn't unrighteous poor. This is the righteous poor here. It's not their fault that they're going into deep debt to feed themselves. And then this is where the great outcry happens. It wasn't just because they were going into debt, even though that was hard. It was because of who they were going into debt to. It was their own Jewish brothers who were taking their lands, taking their vineyards, taking their houses, putting their kids into slavery to pay off their debt. It wasn't King Artaxerxes. It wasn't somebody else, some enemy. It was their own Jewish brothers who were doing it. Nehemiah said, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. It was the nobles and the officials of the Jews that were doing this, the ones that were better off. These are the people in positions of leadership, places of, of privilege. They could have helped out, but instead they were exploiting this situation and bringing their fellow Jews into bondage to themselves. They had, this is a period of time when gifts would have been appropriate, but instead they were possessing their fields as collateral and expecting to be repaid with interest. That's what the great outcry was about. So Nehemiah confronted them on their guilt. And as we read, a great assembly was held, sort of like a church court. Here's what's going on. Here's what God's law says. And God's law does speak to this. Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, You will not charge interest uh, to your brother if you have to loan him something. You will not do it. But they were doing it. So they have this court. They have this assembly. They stand guilty as charges that they had nothing to say. You know, we, we can't get out of this. 
We are guilty. But the good news is they repented. They did everything Nehemiah told them to do to make restitution. They returned ownership of the fields and the vineyards and so forth. And then the episode ends on a happy note. Uh, they say, Amen. <laughs> they praise the Lord. Uh, restoration has happened. We're good again. We can move forward now. So it ends well. But let's stop there and let's learn something from the situation. Why does this story deserve a whole chapter in our Bibles? Why do we have, in between two chapters on the enemy opposition, why do we have in, the, in between those two things this story of the, the people having an outcry against each other about this, this exploitation that's going on inside the community? Why is it there? What would we miss if we didn't know about this? I think it's, it's this. It's a reminder about the kind of community that God intends to build in His people. The Lord's not just ultimately interested in gathering His people behind a wall to keep them safe from their enemies. His ultimate goal is to transform a people into His likeness to reflect His holy character and His attributes. The God who created us is a God of compassion and mercy and love toward the distressed and downcast. And that's what He wants us to become, beginning with how we act toward our brother or sister in the faith. If that's not the community that's being built, then it isn't worth building a wall around it. God is after transformation, not just gathering. Being chiefly concerned about yourself at the expense of other people is not the way of our God. It's not the way of Christ. We know that from Philippians 2, 4 to 5. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Selflessness, generosity towards others, consideration of what would benefit somebody else, that is the mindset of the person who is in Christ. When, when his life affects our life, when we are transformed by grace, the thing that happens, the fruit that happens is, I want to think about you, not just about me. I want to have compassion on your suffering not just be consumed with my own life. That's the fruit that happens if God lays hold of us through Christ. And it wasn't going on there in that community, at least not with the nobles and the officials. Self-giving, compassion, awareness of other people's need. Doesn't that sound like a community that you want to be a part of? Like, if everybody's doing that, if that's the way we're all leaning in, if that's our, our, our instinct and our action, oh, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's that, that's that taste of what God wants for us, that, that foretaste of the life to come right now. He's doing it through His people, those who are in Christ, who have that mind. And so he wants us to become like that. doesn't want to just separate us out of the world and build a wall around us. He wants us to be different in the world. 
to be like this, to be like him. <clears throat> so that was the great outcry. Let's talk about the root problem. Because no change happens without getting at the roots. Uh, no sinful behavior can ultimately change unless it gets changed at the root level, the, re the, the source of the behavior. And the source is always the condition of our hearts. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 and 22, that it's from within, out of the heart of man, that come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and many other things. Actions flow from what's in the heart. So change has to happen in the heart if it's going to last. And we have a window into the hearts of the nobles and the officials who are exploiting their brothers and sisters in the faith. It's in Nehemiah's response to the great outcry. After confronting their sin, he describes what they need to do about it. And that begins in verse 9. And here's where he starts. He says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? That's a very interesting starting point. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? If you had walked in the fear of our God, you wouldn't have exploited your fellow Jews. If you had been more concerned about the taunts of the nations than your personal gain, you wouldn't have done this. And that means if you had the concern that your actions might bring dishonor to God, might give them reasons to taunt this new community that's forming, if that had been your desire, you wouldn't have exploited your, your fellow Jews. That's hard issues. A hard issue towards God. What's fundamentally missing here, according to Nehemiah, is you lack the fear of our God. Now, were these changes the offenders the offenders were, were there were there changes that the offenders needed to make? I mean, did they have to actually do something? Did they actually actually there were there steps to take, and there were. He goes on in, chapter, in verses 10 and 11, he says that they have to abandon this exacting of interest. They have to return this very day their fields, their vineyards, and all this other stuff. So there has to be restitution. There are appropriate steps to take that are in keeping with repentance. It must change your behavior. Your, your behavior has to change, but he doesn't start with that list. He starts with, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Because that's the root problem. It's the heart issue. It's a vertical problem before it's a horizontal problem. You don't walk in fear. Now, to see how this applies to us, we need to understand what the Scriptures mean by the fear of our God or the fear of the Lord, which is the more common phrase that you'll read in Scripture. And it does apply to us in the church today. The church is described in Acts 9.31 as walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So this is for Jesus' followers. Through Nehemiah, the Lord is speaking to us this morning saying, ought you, church, not to walk in the fear of the Lord. 
But what does it mean to walk in the fear of the Lord or in the fear of our God? I know that for not a few Christians, not to mention non-Christians, the idea of fearing God doesn't sound like a positive thing. Fear God. Why would we want to do that? Isn't the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Fear God? Where does that fit in? Shouldn't it just be all love? It doesn't sound positive that we should fear God. One, one might say that the fear of our God means we are supposed to be afraid all the time, afraid of God's judgment, afraid of being punished if we step out of line, afraid of not living up to His expectations. And if that is your understanding of the fear of the Lord, then it definitely is not positive. It's certainly not something that's going to motivate change in your life because fear is not a great motivator for anything lasting. Um, your kids may obey you for a while if they know they'll be punished for doing this or that, but unless the heart has changed, as soon as they have opportunity, they're still going to do that thing. right? We know that. That's, that's just the way the human heart works. Fear is not a good enough motivator. But in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is quite different from that. There is a place for being afraid of God's judgment. That is true. Psalm 76 says to the Lord, But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? That's to the nations. If you are a sinner before God without a mediator, without a Savior interceding for your sin, that is, in fact, a frightful thing because God's judgment is real. To die without forgiveness for your sin is to experience what Jesus called eternal punishment in Matthew 25, 46. However, the fear of the Lord... For someone whose sins are forgiven through faith in Christ is consistently a positive thing in Scripture. Listen to a few statements about the goodness of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, from Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. That's a good thing, right? If you don't hate evil, you do, that means you are okay with it, and that is not good. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, from Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, from Proverbs 1. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, from Proverbs 14. These and more descriptions say that the fear of the Lord is a pure thing. It is a source of wisdom, knowledge, continual refreshment to your soul like a fountain of life that just keeps on giving. But what is it exactly? How could we define it? <clears throat> I think scholar and author Kelly Capick describes it well in his book, You're Only Human. I picked it up because I like that title. 
I want to feel some relief that I'm only human <laughs> and that I don't have to be God. That's why I picked up the book. It had a lot more than, in it than that. <clears throat> um, but taking into account all the biblical data, here's what Kelly Capek summarized the fear of the Lord to be. He said, living in the fear of the Lord is not so much about being scared, although sometimes that is an appropriate response, and he references Psalm 46, but about recognizing God's real presence all about us. Biblical fear of the Lord moves at both the rational and non-rational levels, holding together both otherness and intimacy, both awe and love, both reverence and trust. This is not so much a fear of punishment, but a fear of ignoring or insulting one we love and who loves us. Sometimes this means being overwhelmed with reverence and awe, but at other times it means savoring Yahweh's fatherly compassion and living out friendship with Him. So to say it simply, to walk in the fear of the Lord is to live as if God is real and present everywhere with all of His attributes, because he is. The word fear is used because there are things about God that should produce reverence, awe, self-humbling. But that fear is in the context of knowing also His great love for us through Christ. God's own self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus 34 upholds this spectrum of love and fear intention. Speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, God said this of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. We'd like to leave off that last sentence. <laughs> we know by no means clear the guilty. And we just want to focus on the, law, the bigger thing, which is the steadfast love, the mercy, the grace. And that is the right proportion. We should focus on God's self-revelation, which is primarily and first about steadfast love. I'm moving towards you. I have compassion on you. I, I do forgive. But don't forget, I am not okay with sin. I will by no means clear the guilty. There's that tension, there's that awareness of His power, which is power for our rescue and our salvation and our protection, but it's also power to punish when necessary. And it is necessary. All sin must be punished. It will either be punished in us, in our unforgiven state, or it will be punished in Christ which is what he came to do, was to receive it. <clears throat> to walk in the fear of the Lord is to embrace all that God is in the spectrum of his attributes. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, it's with this ongoing awareness of and trust in our God, in all of his holiness, but also his forgiveness, his justice and his mercy, his power 
and His compassion. And when, we, when that kind of fear is in our hearts, it affects how we live. It changes our attitude and our actions. The nobles and the officials would not have selfishly exploited their brothers if they had considered the merciful, gracious, and compassionate nature of God as well as the punishment that their own sin deserves. That same fear of the Lord will affect how we live as believers in Christ. Let me ask this question. How would you live differently if you were aware that Jesus himself was right there in everything that you do? And that's not a hypothetical scenario. That's real. What did he say before he ascended into heaven? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He meant that for comfort. He meant that, that, meant that we can go forth and make disciples of all nations. I'm going to be with you in all of that, but, but he is with us. God is with us by his Spirit in every moment of every day and every place that we go and in everything that we do. So how would it affect what we do and how we think if we were aware, if we walked in the fear of the Lord and knew God is here in all of his attributes? How would it affect your internet use? How would it affect who you look to for influence in your life, who's speaking into your life? How does it affect what you're doing with your downtime? How does it affect what your goals are in your career? How does it affect the, your interaction with people around you? See, the fear of the Lord will affect those things because we think God is with us, and here's what He's like. And I love Him, and He loves me, and I fear doing something that ignores or insults the one I love. The one who has sent his son. So what would that look like in this moment right now? To, to honor him. That is walking in the fear of the Lord. Ask a question like that. Are we walking in the fear of our God? I can say in confidence that when we do, when our lives are shaped by that active sense of His holy presence and power and forgiveness and love, it will be a fountain of life to us. That's what it's meant to be. That, that's, that's what changes us and changes the community. It makes us go from selfish to self-giving, to use the example in Nehemiah 5. That would have changed it. There wouldn't have been some, a great outcry if they'd been walking in the, the fear of the Lord. It wouldn't have happened. They would have been bearing one another's burdens. They would have been generous towards one another. That's what it does to us. It renews us after the image of our Creator who gave Himself for us, who was really the origin of this compassion. And we see that in the reminder of, of Nehemiah's own life at the end of the chapter. The last point is the living example. <clears throat> By that I mean the living example of what it looks like to walk in the fear of the Lord. Nehemiah is that example in the remaining verses of the chapter, and we have to admit that he is a colorful example. Uh, I mentioned before that Nehemiah 
has a strong personality. If you really read through it slowly and you watch him and compare him to Ezra in, in particular, you see that he's a different kind of a guy. Um, he's a guy that deals with challenges and sin boldly. <laughs> uh, he's not afraid of jumping into the fray. He's not afraid of saying what comes to his mind. He's not afraid of like going after it. That's the kind of guy Nehemiah is. Um, and in, in verse 13, there's this, I feel like, somewhat comical, uh, though it is serious, moment that he has. Um, in, in, in verse 13, he, he has this prophetic moment where he acts a little bit like Ezekiel or one of the other ma major prophets. Uh, he shakes out the fold of his garment. This is at the big assembly. And he, he says, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. It's, a, it's an oracle of judgment like you might read in Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, uh, one of those guys. And I have to wonder, did the Lord tell him to say that or was that just something that he added you know, for effect? Uh, <laughs> Was he still cooling down from, from his anger about, about the revelation of this offense? I don't think we know. Maybe it was both. Uh, it wouldn't be unlike Nehemiah to go a little extra, uh, to go a little over the top in his reaction to things. But here's one thing we do know. Nehemiah treated those same fellow Jews who were exploited in a completely different way. He did it with self-giving. It had to do with the food allowance of the governor, which we learn about in verses 14 to 19. So let's read that passage, and then I'll point out a few things. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, at my table, 150 men... Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. We learn here that Nehemiah's official position in Jerusalem was the governor. King Artaxerxes made him the governor. We didn't know that about him beforehand. Now we do. He was, that, he was the governor for 12 years, as it turns out. And so he's writing this report, this memoir, after those 12 years have happened. And he's reflecting on his leadership during that time. And the point that he centers on is how he handled the food allowance of the governor. The food allowance was authorized by the king as part of his benefits, his benefit package, you might say. And it was expected to be provided by the people that he was governing, so the Jews. 
were supposed to supply him with food. They were going to feed him. But what did Nehemiah do about this allowance? He said, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance. And again, I did not demand the food allowance. It was legally his, but he didn't demand it. Rather, instead of taking food from his fellow Jews, he actually fed them. There was 150 people at my table. Every day, we're sacrificing an ox, we're sacrificing sheep, birds, all this stuff. I'm even giving them wine, which I think is so much fun. Like in the middle of like being opposed by enemies all around you and there's a famine, we're still going to have wine. He's like, we're still going to remember God is good once every 10 days. <laughs> I just think that's an interesting side note. But that's what he's doing. He's feeding them. He's not taking advantage. He knows this is a hard burden. They don't have it. They can't do this, but I happen to have some resources, and I'm going to live on those, and I'm going to share it with them too. Very opposite manner of life to the nobles and the officials who are exploiting their brothers. Very opposite to the former governors before him, who were all more than happy to take the allowance and even charging money, 40 shekels of silver every, every day or whatever it was. They were totally doing that. They were into that. But Nehemiah's not taking. He's giving. I didn't demand it because the service was too heavy. He, he foregoes what's rightfully his by the king's law and instead gives out of his own resources, showing compassion. Why did he do it? Underlying reason. Verse 15. I did not do so, that is, lay heavy burdens on them, because of the fear of God. That's why he did it. That's why he acted that way. He walked in the active awareness of God in all of his attributes, and that includes compassion and self-giving for the sake of those who cannot bear the burden that's the fruit of walking in the fear of the Lord. And that points beyond Nehemiah, doesn't it? Because the person who is the very embodiment of those attributes of the fear of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11 said this about the Savior who is going to come, about Jesus. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see someone who is the ultimate living example of walking in the fear of the Lord. At every moment of his life, Jesus lived in the awareness of the immediate presence of God within him. Everything he did was in agreement with the Father's character and will. Everything he did was for the purpose of bringing glory to God the Father whom he loved and who he knew loved him. Jesus is the one Nehemiah's example points us to. Nehemiah didn't demand the privileges of being the governor of Judah. Jesus didn't demand something much greater than that. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That's foregoing what is rightfully yours, but lowering yourself for the sake of others. Nehemiah provided food for the people, but Jesus provides the bread of life, forgiveness of sin, the favorable presence of God with us now and forever. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, the Savior who delighted in the fear of the Lord. And that's why he laid down his life for his sins. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me bring this to a close. Again, why is this chapter in the Bible? What's its lesson for us today? The simple thing is the Lord would have us to walk in the fear of the Lord. Like Jesus and Nehemiah was one of the examples we can relate to. A flawed man, a guy with some character, a guy with some color in his life, but he's doing it because God changes people. God transforms us by his grace. Through Christ, we can have that mindset. Don't just think of your own interests, but the interests of others. He's doing that in us. Why? Because he wants us to taste of the life to come. He wants to build a community that's a counterexample to, to the selfishness, which is so easy for us to have. And we want to have an authentic community where it's not happening. And isn't that the thing that we can enjoy and thrive in and, and have to offer others into, bring them into it? He wants us to experience this kind of thing. He wants us to experience what it, the goodness of walking in the fear of the Lord, what that looks like. And we need it for, for one reason, because this is a world full of opposition. We're jumping back into chapter 6 next week. More trouble on the way. There's always going to be trouble, but in the midst of it, what kind of a community do we have? God wants us to have one where we're there for each other, where the interest is towards one another. We bear each other's burdens. And what a great God that he wants that for us. And why not go after it so that we can bring a little bit of the life to come into the right now? And I think that's happening. But he wants us to keep moving in that direction. May he help us <laughs> to walk in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for... Not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying yourself, becoming made in the likeness of man, bearing our sin on the cross, bearing the burden that we couldn't bear, paying our debts instead of putting us into debt so that we could be right with you, so that we could have a future and a hope. We thank you for that. Help us to live in the good of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing in response.